So we've been since Easter in a series called Signs, and we're looking at the seven miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus did way more than seven miracles, but the Apostle John, when he wrote his eyewitness account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he does this sequence starting in chapter 2 through verse 11 where there's seven signs, seven miraculous signs that he did began with uh, Jesus turning water to wine. Uh, It was his first miracle at a wedding. How many think that would have been pretty cool to be there? um, It was in Cana, and then he healed a royal official's son. He uh, opens blind eyes and then um, just does amazing things all the way to to, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead. And then ultimately, the sign of all signs was his resurrection. The people saw Jesus die on a cross be wrapped in, in, in burial cloth, put away, locked in a tomb, and then eyewitnesses saw him on the third day resurrected just as he promised. That's what we're building our whole hope on, is the truth of what, what Jesus promised, what he's done, and what he said he would do. So in this s- series on teaching on the signs, there's a couple things that we, I want to remind us on a weekly basis that, first of all, the purpose of a sign for Jesus was to authenticate who he said he was. He made some amazing claims that he was the son of God. And so these miraculous signs were there to um, back up his claims and to authenticate who he said he was. And another purpose to the signs is a sign in a practical sense gives direction, right? You follow a street sign to get to your right destination. And for us today, Jesus wants us to have confidence in him, confidence in who he is and who he's promised to be. So that's the purpose of these signs. And so um, a few of us were in Israel. I know I brag about that like every week, and I'm so sorry to rub that in. But it was life-changing. It was my third time there. And um, when you're around the Sea of Galilee in particular, that's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. He was from Nazareth, which is a city, you know, town around the Sea of Galilee. And... uh, when you go to these different places, Cana and all that, you know, there's just no doubt Jesus was there. And there is a, a, a place, a church called Tagba in, um, the, around the Sea of Galilee. Wherever there's a church, it's probably not the exact spot, <laughs> sadly, w- where something happened. But you know you're definitely in the vicinity. When you're in Israel, there are some no doubt spots that, you know, you read the Bible and you're standing in the same spot. I'll actually show you one a little bit later in the message. But um, they found this uh, old, old church that had a, a mosaic floor. I think we have a picture of it. A mosaic floor of the, the fishes and the loaves, right? And the, and the miracle that we're going to talk about today when Jesus fed the 5,000, which it actually was more than 5,000. That was 5,000 men. There was probably another 5,000 wives and another 5,000, you know, kids as well, women and children. And so they found this. So they think that might have been the spot where this church is. It was pretty cool. I mean, you're definitely in the vicinity of that in the Sea of Galilee. That's a picture um, from the floor in in this old church that, you know, that's hundreds and hundreds of years old. So um, I want to read from the Gospel of of John. I'm going to pick it up in in chapter 6 and read... uh, some verses to you about a story, this miracle that happened. It says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore 
of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had been that he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and he saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, 15,000 people. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. As I was studying for this, this was about three weeks ago, I try to stay way ahead on this and you know, not throw something together on a Saturday night for you and truly like try to have it ready and have it marinating in my heart. We all do that, that, that teach here. And as I was studying this about three weeks ago, I, I literally have probably read that story 50, 100 times and heard gobs of messages. How many have heard tons of messages on this story, right? Many. Something just leapt out of the pages. It was one of those aha moments that you know, you, you're reading the Bible and you've read something over and over and you see something that's fresh, that is fun. It is such an amazing thing to go, whoa, I've never seen that. I get a big kick out of that when that happens. And what I saw in here was there was an impossible problem. How in the world do you feed 15,000 people, Jesus? <laughs> How, there's an impossible problem. How do you feed 15,000 people? There's no delivery. There's no Costco to run over to. There's no Uber Eats that you can call. We have 15,000 people to, to feed, and we have nothing but a couple loaves of bread and some fish. How are we going to do this? Well, what I saw from this is that in, if, if we will read this through this set of lenses this morning, that there was an impossible problem, that Jesus gives us possibility principles for impossible problems. I know that's a tongue twister, like say it really fast, possibility principles for impossible problems, but you, uh, it's, it's true. And today you may be facing an impossible problem. I know you're facing things. An impossible problem is something that you could never solve on your own. You don't have the resources, the ability to solve whatever problem is before you. If you find yourself in those shoes this morning, I, I say tune in. Tune in and let the Lord speak to your heart. And the first principle that 
we learn from this possibility principle for impossible problems is this. Do not measure a problem according to your own abilities or resources. Do we not do that? We look at a problem, we start counting our money. We start counting our, how much time do I have? How much resources do I have? And we feel overwhelmed. But if you want Jesus to solve your impossible problem, don't measure your problem according to your own ability or resources. Now, Philip, Jesus talks to him, and he tests him. And it's interesting because he says, hey, Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? <laughs> Philip being the, the glass half full guy that he was, or glass half empty, forgive me. He was a glass half empty guy. He said it would take more than a half year's wage to buy bread for everyone to have a bite. He saw an impossible problem, but he was banking on his own resources and abilities in that moment. That's why he was, the, the glass was, was half empty. Now think about this. Philip or maybe as his bros called him Phil, maybe Phil, um, sorry, maybe, maybe Philip, you know, he had seen Jesus already do miracles. He had been walking physically with Jesus. You would think after he has seen miracles happen that, that Philip would have said, I don't know, Jesus, how are we going to find the bread for this? What do you have up your sleeve? I can't wait to see this. And yet, he was slow to learn. He was slow to get it. And guess what? I'm slow to get it. I'm slow to learn. I'm quick to complain when a problem comes my way. And so are you. <laughs> I know you. We all are. Our, our, our quick go-to is to complain and freak out. We're human, right? But yet, Philip had seen Jesus do the things that he was doing, these miracles. You know what you got to do? Exactly like the song we were singing, Do It Again, is remind yourself of what the Lord's already done for you, what you've already seen him do in your life, what he's rescued you from, how you came to salvation in him, how he revealed himself to you, how he's walked with you and been close to you, all of your walk. Remember what he's already done. So when it says that, that he tests Philip, he said he asked this only to test him. The Lord tests us not to grade us, but to grow us. He doesn't test us to grade us to see if we're going to pass or fail. We're going to get an you know, A, B, C in this particular problem. He tests us. When you go through a test, it's not to grade you. He already knows how you and I are going to respond to a problem. Good, bad, indifferent. He knows how we're going to respond. So it's not, it's not to grade us, but it's to grow our hearts. And I wonder today if you're in a test. And if you're in a test today, God is growing you. He's not trying to grade you. He's trying to grow your character, your faith, your perseverance. You think about what James chapter 1 says. It says that we're to consider it all joy when the testing of our faith happens, when trials of various kind come into our life. Why? Are we supposed to be thankful for the test itself? No. Tests stink, right? It is what's going to happen because of the test. He goes on to say, because you're going to grow in your character, your perseverance, your faith. So if you're in the middle of a test today, God's not out to get you or out to fail you. He's, he wants to grow each, each one of us. There was a, 
class of engineer students, and they were given a problem by their professor. The professor said, I want you to figure out how to cook a three-pound roast in 325-degree heat. How long would it take to cook three pounds of roast in 325-degree heat to make sure that the center was 150 degrees? He gave them this problem. So one of the students, he rushed out to Walmart, and he bought himself a, a roaster and a thermometer and a watch. He was just going to go do it. Then uh, one of the other guys, he was, took, it, took it as a math problem, and he had his spreadsheet, and he was going to calculate how long would you do this, 325 degrees to get to 100, 150 degrees in the center. Well, the guy that finished the, the, this problem, this project, the fastest, guess what he did? He called his mom. He called mama. Mom, how do I cook a roast? <laughs> and it was done. He knew exactly how, how to do it. And the point of that is this. Most of the things that we learn in life, m- most of the, the biggest discoveries, so to speak, the biggest questions that we have in life are not discovered logically. They're discovered relationally. They're discovered relationally. God wants you and I to be close to him, to know him, to trust him. That's what he was trying to teach Philip. He knew what he was already going to do, but Philip, where are we going to get the bread? God is asking you today, where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to pay the bills? Where are we going to, you know, get whatever it is that's that problem or that test that you're in right now? So we got to remember who he is. God tests us to stretch our faith. He tests us to strengthen our hope and to show us his love. Stretch our faith, strengthen our hope, and to show us his love. I've got a question for you. What have you decided is too big for God to accomplish? What have you decided? What have I decided that is too big? You have a problem in your life and you're saying, this is too big. This is too big for God. Here's what I think you should do is go home and, and think about your problem and write down everything that you cannot do to solve that problem. Because the majority of our frustration comes into trying to solve a problem that we don't have the capacity or resources to do. But we measure the problem that way rather than measuring it by who God is. And so write down what you cannot do. It. Here, here's an example. Maybe you're in a, a relationship or a friendship or a marriage relationship that's that's difficult, and somebody is not cooperating in that relationship, you, you would write down on that that you can't make people do what they don't want to do. If you're frustrated with, with, with a son or a daughter or, or somebody in your life, you can't make them do what they don't want to do. So I'd write that down. Stop spinning your wheels on that. Maybe right now you're just in, in a huge feeling of guilt and shame over a bad decision or something that you've done in your life. You know what you can't do about that? You can't change the past. The past is the past. You can only move forward and do what, you, do what God would tell you to do today. You're not going to always understand everything about what happens to you in life. And the more we try to spin our wheels, why, 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 the more frustrated we get. Okay, the second principle Second possibility uh, principle for impossible problems 
is this. A little in the hands of Jesus becomes more than enough. Isn't that good? Whatever I have, I give a little to God, it becomes more than enough. Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, he was a little bit more of a, a glass, you know, half full. Philip was definitely eh, empty. He was a glass half full. He was a pessimistic optimist. <laughs> when he says, he spoke up and he said, here's a boy with five loaves of bread and two small fish, but how far will that go? <laughs> I mean, he was willing, like, yeah, I got a little bit here, but I don't think this is going to feed 15,000 people. He, he was still a little slow to get it as well. I wonder today, the question for us is this, where have you and I decided that too little, I have too little to make a difference? Where have you decided that you have too little to make a difference? Maybe when it comes to giving and tithing, you think, I, I don't have much, so what's, what's that going to do? Well, a little in the hands of Jesus becomes more than enough. Maybe it's you don't have a degree or you don't feel educated enough. Well, sometimes you just need to show up, right? A little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. Maybe you don't feel like you have the gifting to do something. A little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. Maybe I know you all feel this. I don't have enough time. A little in the hands of Jesus is going to be more than enough. I think, you know, having Mark up here and our high school students that are graduating made me think of, you know, maybe you think serving in our, our youth ministry is just for young, younger people. And maybe you're a little older thinking, ah, that's not me. A little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. You never know. You might be the answer to someone's prayer for a mentor or someone to speak into their life. A little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. So why did Jesus, when he did this sign, what, what, what he did in this sign, he can do for you and I. I think that's important. He took this small amount of stuff, bread and fish, and fed 15,000 people. How, how does this work? A couple little points on this. First of all, God often will reduce, he'll reduce our resources so that we'll focus on him. He'll reduce our resources so that we'll focus on him. In the book of Judges, chapter 7, you remember the story of Gideon? Gideon was one of the judges. Now, the, it's not like a, don't think like of a courtroom judge, think of a leader. Before there were kings, there were, there were judges and leaders over Israel. Gideon, he was called by, by God out of a, you know, not a well-to-do family. He wasn't the most brave, courageous guy that you would ask to lead an army and to, to, to defeat Israel's enemies. And yet, a little in the hands of God is always more than enough. And he wanted to show uh, Gideon exactly how strong he was. Now, Gideon had raised an army of about 10,000 soldiers. And they were going to go fight, you know, their, their enemy. And God said, time out. 10,000 is way too many. You're going to win this battle, and then you're going to think you did it in your own strength. So I'm going to whittle the, the number from 10,000 to a significant amount less. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the spring, and I want you to have all the, the men take a drink. And he said, the men that, that get down on one knee, you know, in a place ready for battle, still have their sword in hand, and take the water and drink this way, those are the men that you keep. 
The guys that, that get down like a dog, put their face in the water, they're gone. They're, they're, they're not going to be here. It whittled down to 300 men to go fight their enemy. Now, I don't know if I've told you this, but we were in Israel recently. Did, did, I, did I tell you that? And uh, we went to Gideon Spring. This is one of those no-doubt locations where something in the Bible happened. A couple pictures. That's what it looks like. And from the back of that little cave, you just see the water bubbling out. And I think the next one shows you that. That's a little moving thing. And then Joel and I decided to take a little drink. We wanted to be in Gideon's army. That was cool. You can act a little more enthusiastic. Jeez. <laughs> Hurt my feelings. I'm just kidding. Um, so then the next thing God does is he magnifies our need. A little in the hands of Jesus becomes more than enough. Say that with me. A little in the hands of Jesus becomes more than enough. He magnifies our need. If God gave us everything we wanted when we wanted it, and if everything was easy and life was always easy, we wouldn't depend upon him, right? We, would, we, would, we wouldn't even think about him. So the more <clears throat> need we have, the more we depend upon him. And then thirdly, someone puts what little they have into his hands. Here's five loaves of bread and a couple fish. Something, whatever they have, the little they put in his hands. I was reading about this. You know, how many have heard of the devotional, My Upmost for His Highest? Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s, which makes him cool because he's Scottish just to start with. But he, um, he was a pretty young pastor. I think he only pastored for about nine years. Never had a church more than, than 20 people. He actually died at age 30. And so from, you know, standards, that's kind of a small amount of influence, right? Well, his wife, when he would preach, would write down word for word what he said. And she compiled all of these sermons over these years. And then after he died, they took those sermons and created my utmost for his highest. A little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. That, that devotional is one of the all-time selling books um, next to the Bible. Oswald didn't even get to see his influence impact all the people that he did. He's in heaven, doesn't even know about it yet. <laughs> he will. He'll get his reward for his faithfulness too. But, but the, 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 a little, I take this, put it in the hands of Jesus, it becomes more than enough. And then, lastly, he uses the little that we have in order to display his greatness. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. They sat down. Jesus took the loaves, and he gave thanks, and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Here's the third principle. The third possibility principle for impossible problems is if I will trust who he is, I will trust how he works. If you and I can get to know who Jesus Christ really is and have confidence in him, then we'll trust how he works. Because how he works sometimes is a little odd. Let's just be honest. He doesn't do things the way we want him to or the way we would. But when you get to know him, you'll trust how he works. That's what happened to the disciples. 
I mean, how are we going to feed him? Lord, there's, there's too many people here. Once they got to know who he was, and after the resurrection, and they saw him predict his death and resurrection and pull it off, whatever he says, they just went with because they knew who he was. It says, when they had all that they, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. If I'm going to trust him, then I have to know who he is. If I'm going to trust how he works, I got to know who he is. I got to build my confidence, let him build his confidence. Here's what blew my mind in that scripture. It says that there were 12 baskets that they gathered. He sent the disciples. How many disciples were there? Twelve. I don't think that's a coincidence. He was showing his disciples, listen, when you do what I say to do, when you put, when you trust me, there's going to be more than enough for you. There'll be an increase. I'm going to blow your minds is what he was showing them. When I read that, I was like, whoa, Lord, because you just get overwhelmed in life with your time and bills and all the things that are around us, is there going to be enough? If I serve, will there be something left over for me? If I give, will there be something left over for me? And Jesus wants us to know there's going to be more than enough for you. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, he says, give and you will receive. He said, with the measure you give, the measure you will receive. He's not saying give to get. He's just saying, listen, you can't outgive me. I will always be enough for you. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, he's given a little benediction. He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. To him who's able to do immeasurably more, a little in the hands of Jesus is more than enough. You give everything over to him and watch what he'll do with your life. Jesus said that he was the bread of life, and then he feeds 15,000 people. He says he's the, the light of the world, and he opens blind eyes to see. I'd give you this last challenge. Measure, measure the size of your problem to the size of your God. If you have a big God, you have a little problem. And I'm not belittling your problem. I'm, it's real, it's difficult, it's all of that. But compare it to the, to the size of God, who he's promised to be, and what eternity is all about. Big God, little problem. Little God, Big problem, right? That's a pretty good little math formula to keep in your mind. We're going to respond. Will you stand with me? We're going to respond with a song. And let's just don't mouth the words to this song. Let's engage with Jesus. We've got a few minutes left together and really... As we sing, pour your heart out to him today. Those of you that, that have these tests and impossible problems before you, declare to him 
that he's more than enough. Declare to him how strong he is and that you're going to trust how he works. Because right now, some of you are frustrated that your problems have not been solved the way you wanted them to be solved when you wanted them solved. He's on the job. You're being tested. You're growing. And on the other side of this, you're going to look back and you're going to thank him for what you went through. That is true. How many know that is true? In the moment, let's call it what it is. It stinks. But on the other end of it, we've grown. So let's sing this and we'll pray together.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is more than enough. He leads us to you, our great Father in heaven. God, may we walk away from this room with more confidence in you, Jesus, because of who you are, what you've done, what you've promised to do. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for the work you've done. Lord, don't let the enemy lie to us. Help us to to quench those fiery darts with the shield of faith of who we are in you and because of you. Lord, today we commit our lives more and more to you. Not depending upon our commitment to you, but your commitment to us. To live the lives that you, you call us to live. Thank you for making us whole. We trust in you, Lord Jesus, for salvation. Past, present, and future. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.